Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your hosts, Austin. Why do I feel like <laughs> I'm sorry, Austin Ye, guys? It's been a long day <laughs> with your host, Austin Ye, and Mayu. What's going on, everybody? I Austin. was waiting for Mayu to say something first. I was like, wait, yeah. I say it first. Yeah, that's funny. We've been off our mojo for a bit now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Austin, what's going on with you? Um, life is just same old life. Uh, Things have reopened back in Toronto, so uh, fortunately, I still couldn't go out much. And the reason being is because I mentioned this again and again, but I have a puppy. And with the puppy okay. who is not vaccinated, we cannot walk them around City Place because everyone has a dog. We don't want him to get sick or anything like that. So I've uh, just been uh, stuck at home. And uh, as a result of that, I've been uh, doing quite a bit of work, real estate related, and um, just watching TV and bumming around, man. Yeah. <laughs> not, not, very, not very interesting. But I think I've... Uh, started forcing myself to have a bit more balance in life, which is a good thing. Um, that's, 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 that was a part of the reason you wanted a puppy as well, right? Like it does force you to like, just take a break from like doing work constantly. It force you to, I mean, not right now, but like once it's vaccinated, you'll have to like take it on walks, you know, like better lifestyle and like better work-life balance, mm-hmm. I guess, right? And I've learned to kind of, I'm not going to say disconnect myself because I'm never disconnected, but I've learned to realize in weekends, I do work when it's urgent work that needs to get done. But if it's like nice to have or, you know, like kind of setting deadlines for myself, take these weekends off. Only if it's urgent things I'll, I'll handle, right? So life is getting better in, in, in that sense. Um, I know you are still working right now, technically, while you're traveling in Vancouver. So what's up with you, man? <laughs> yeah, I think, well, okay. So, so part of the reason we want to go to Vancouver was more so for me, it's just like a proof of concept, right? It's just like, can I like live somewhere else? Do I even like need to live in Toronto, blah, blah, blah. Like my wife wasn't really, hold, young, on, like, hold on. you move from one expensive cost of like living city. It's like proof of concept in another expensive. Well, my, my wife doesn't have to take the leap and go to like Costa Rica or like something like that, which is what I was originally trying to like convince her on. But um, I just did this as like, okay, let's see how this goes. And she still obviously has work, right? So she wasn't like, she didn't really like, I mean, technically she can work from home, but she didn't really want to, to give that a shot and like try and like living somewhere else for a long time or whatever. Um, but yeah, so for me, it's like, sure, we're traveling, but like, I like the three hour time difference that Vancouver and Toronto has because that allows me, and like, I'm a super early bird anyway. So like, I'll wake up like five or 6 a.m. like Vancouver time and like, I'll do work until like 10 or 11 by the time my wife works, wakes up and like, I'll be able to crush out like a decent amount of work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really like that. So it's just really like learning a few things about like the work from home life, but like, I, I'd, I'd be on the opposite end of where you are right now. And I think like, it's part of the journey. Right. So I think right now it's every single day is a day that you can work. Like what is a weekend, right? Um, but like, I think somewhere along the way, like it's not, it's not sustainable, right? To just like try and work every single day. Like you're going to burn out and stuff like that. Even if we really like what we do, like you are still going to burn out, right? Yeah. And it's hard to uh, just say, I, this is like, I'm not going to work weekends. We're trying to work our way into, like you can't just 100% turn to that lifestyle. You know, like we got to yeah, transition yeah. off and like, I guess you're, you're doing a little bit of a test right now. Is it going well, you'd say? Uh, it's going well. Yeah. But it's, it's also like super difficult to do work when my wife doesn't have any work to do. Right. Cause, mm-hmm. um, so, so I'll see her in bed. And I'm like, oh, I just want to like relax now. <laughs> so that's the only thing, but, um, yeah, like so far, like everything I can do, like you can do remotely. Like we don't really like visit our rental properties, right? Like 
none of that stuff. Like you really don't need to be there. Um, you can analyze deals from anywhere and you can like make offers and mortgages you can do from anywhere as well. So that like, that works out really well. Especially when you have an established network, which is, I would like to say we do, we have built up an established network for ourselves. Yeah. And really it's just a matter of, for us, when we're building long distance teams, we're making phone calls, but on that phone call, we're establishing credibility. It's like, I have X amount of units. I've done this in XYZ properties, completely long distance. Um, If you are able to help me, I'm able to help you out in ABC ways. For us, fortunately, we have a platform, which, I mean, if realtors are good at what they do, they're investor oriented, so on and so forth, we can share them with our platform in exchange for obviously like kind of like amazing services for us, right? So um, it's really just about creating a win-win mutual beneficial relationship. And you just never need to be there once you have that uh, pat down. But you do need to take the leap of faith and, and kind of try that out for the first little bit. For us, at the very least, I think we would, we took the leap of faith, but we would still drive back and forth from Windsor every once in a while when we were uncertain about things. But I think we've grown to the point where we're confident in completely stepping out of yeah. the day-to-day and managing from afar via email, phone calls, and videos. So that was New Brunswick for me, right? Where it was just like, I can't go to New Brunswick, right? Let me give this a shot and see how this shit goes. But um, yeah, I think you're right on. Like now I just have like more and more confidence. That, like you could really be anywhere and invest anywhere um, without really going and checking out with the properties. You can go as much as you want to go, right? Like mm-hmm. sometimes I do want to go and see the property just for like myself. And I don't know, just like get my content for social media out of the way and stuff like that. But um, yeah. We're going to jump into today's episode because I don't know if you heard, but my dog is coughing in the background. He has a cold, so I got to attend to him. Um, But in today's episode, we have a phenomenal guest, Ming Lim of uh, Volition Properties. And Ming is actually a phenomenal investor who started off investing in Waterloo and then actually pivoted his entire portfolio over to Toronto. And he's able to find a unique strategy to make Toronto numbers work. And by Toronto, I don't mean Scarborough. I don't mean North York. I'm referring to Toronto proper. Like things like High Park, um, uh, Little Italy, yeah, Little Portugal, yeah. all of those like pro- like Toronto proper. And he's able to add equity lift into properties while still having them be at least minimum neutral, but slightly cash flow positive. Um, so this is a phenomenal episode. If you are ever interested in investing in Toronto, you cannot miss this one out because we really just break down how the strategies to make Toronto numbers work. Make sure to tune in. everyone today we are joined with ming ling ming how are you doing today i'm good man how are you we're not too bad and not too bad thank you for joining us so ming ming from uh, volition properties but wh- why don't we get get started with um how you got started in real estate investing because i think a lot of our guests would just love to hear that you're doing a lot of crazy stuff now today that we're definitely going to get into um, but if we just talk about you know the first like zero to four or five properties that you were started investing in where were they uh when was it and what was that journey like for you yeah, um, ha- happy to talk about that. It's funny, like when I was reading through, uh, you know, before we do these podcasts, every- everybody sends each other notes and kind of preps a little bit. And uh, I remember I saw something that said, like, show a bit of personality. I was like, oh, that's pressure, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have a very interesting story or a very interesting personality, uh, but I'll tell you what happened. So um, I-, I was going to school at the time. Uh, I was going to Waterloo. Uh, that's where I got my undergrad. And uh, my roommates were watching Oprah and this dude, uh, Robert Kiyosaki was on there. And I, I, at the time, you know, I didn't know anything about personal finance. I didn't know any of this stuff. So he's talking to Oprah and he's talking about his new book. This is how old I am guys. 
He's talking about his new book at the time, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That's so oh, funny. That sounds really interesting, right? Yeah. And I like to tell the story like my roommates were watching Oprah, guys. Uh, not not that it was me. <laughs> right? So anyway, so I was like, oh, you know, sounds sounds cool. I'll go out. I went to Chapters because they were still a thing back then and uh, bought a book, uh, picked up Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I was like, wow, it was amazing, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not a... I, I'm not a big reader, to be quite honest. I, I like to listen to uh, audiobooks, but you know, you won't find me picking up a book to read for fun. And um, I couldn't put that book down. Like it was like I think I read it straight, 24, 36 hours, and I was uh, went through the whole book, and it was mind blowing. Like if you've ever read uh, any sort of book, it, it's a complete mindset shift. And I was like, oh, yeah, he talks a little bit about rental properties. I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta go take action. Uh, that's kind of mistake number one because. I'm sure like people listening to your podcast today, they're already educating themselves and stuff like that. You know, that's the kind of crew you got. But for me, like uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> I was like, Oh, I just got to take action. I took action right away. So about a week or two weeks after reading that book, I went and bought my first rental property. Wow. And it was all wrong. <laughs> yeah. That's very quick. Yeah. Cause Rick it was really that- quick. Well, I mean, back I'd saved some money cause I just started working, right? Like I just graduated. We're still all living together in our student housing. And I just started my first job at uh, research in motion. Uh, Sorry, I mean, when, when was this? Like when? Roughly? Oh, uh, oh, one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Back when rent was popping. Yeah. Yeah. Back, <laughs> back, back then. Yes. Uh, so anyway, so I, I went, um, I'd saved some money cause I was like, uh, I had no car. Right. So I was like walking to work as like walking to school. I was like, I was going to buy a used car or I was going to, well, instead I bought a, a rental property. It was a real tough time actually buying a used car. Cause, um, back then we had GST and PSD split up. And if you bought privately, you didn't have to pay one of them. I think you only had to pay PSD. You didn't have to pay GST. So I'd have to take the damn bus like in Waterloo to go see people's cars in their driveways. And that was just such a pain in the butt. I was like, you know what? I'll just buy a house first and I'll deal with the car stuff later. So my agent's going to buy houses? <laughs> well, my agent had a car. She'd come pick me up <laughs> and go look, at, go look at houses. And uh, yeah, so I ended up with my first student rental property. And it was all wrong, actually. Um, it was an illegal student rental. Which, like at the time, I didn't even know there was legal and illegal. But in Waterloo, there's a max of three people that you're allowed to have, uh, or like three unrelated people within a house, and or something along those lines. And and I couldn't, uh, like, I had five in there. It was like uh, further subdivided illegally. Um, So I got fined for that. The driveway was. How did someone find out about that? Usually those things go, you know, like the city just doesn't care too much unless someone reports it. Waterloo is really tough on this. And, um, you know, they're one of the few cities that are, and, and I actually, to be quite uh, like, to be quite honest, I, I agree with them because there were just, there's some actually really bad incidences there of like fires and people uh, getting hurt uh, because they were, they were over, overcrowded uh, student rental properties. And so when things like that happened, they took a really tough stance on, um, you know, any sort of illegal uh, student rental housing. So I had to get rid of two of those tenants and I, you know, had to, the numbers changed on the property, but it was a really good first step and, and kind of kicked me in the butt to, uh, to learn a little bit more before I continued investing. But that was the, that was the first property, right? It was a semi-detached, uh, I think it was like $115,000. Mm-hmm. That's uh, crazy. It's, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's the numbers when I talk about it these days are nuts. And I bought a 5% down because you could back then. 
So I have 5% down, 115,000. That's how I was able to buy like either a used Honda Civic or a, <laughs> or a you know, investment property. But yeah, so then after that, I just kind of rinse repeated, right? Like uh, refinance, let the, let the property value go up, refinance, bought another student rental property, sold the original one, bought another student rental property. Uh, and I just kept doing that because I was living in Waterloo at the time. So it was a lot easier. And the economics back then weren't so tough. Like it was pretty much, you just had to find a decent place and you didn't have to be very sophisticated investor back then. Some like light improvements and you could cash flow pretty easily. So I got up to about uh, over 20 doors, I think at the time using that same strategy. And that happened over like a seven or eight year period. And then I had moved to uh, Toronto. So stopped working at RAM, started working at Rogers and I was, managing everything myself. And this is like mistake number one. Oh, sorry, but well, lots of mistakes. <laughs> one of the big mistakes though, was like I didn't network and I didn't really educate myself in the beginning. And like, so kudos to all your listeners because they're already on that path of education and of networking. But I didn't in the beginning and I didn't see the really the value or the power in it, which is like a massive, massive mistake because I got to this point where I had all these properties and I was like, I hate this. Like, this is awful. I'm spending all my free time managing these things. I'm spending my evenings and my weekends uh, working on these properties. Did you have a local property manager? I know you were still doing everything from Toronto. I tried, but it was not a great experience. Like I tried actually multiple property managers. Um, and this is kind of the thing, yeah, a little, little side uh, note here. But uh, what I find a lot of times with property management is they're almost like, uh, victims of their own success, right? They start off a certain size. They can give you lots of attention. They're renting out your properties for you. They're on top of the tenant issues, but then because they're good, they get referenced and they start growing, growing. And they, they, then when they scale, they just can't scale well. Different people are brought on and they just, you know, and then they start becoming investors themselves and they're going to take care of their own before they take care of you. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and that happened to me actually three times with three different property managers. So I ended up kind of managing everything myself and you know, that, that sucked, right? Students are not bad renters. They're just not, you know, home care and paying rent on time are just not top of mind for them. Right. They've got, they've got, <laughs> and they don't think for themselves, they're going to call you before they try yeah. to go on Google and just yeah, exactly. And like, you know, it's not the most important thing in their life right now. Right. They're, they've got, they've got midterms, they've got the exams, projects, all this other stuff. They don't know if it's June 1st or, you know, whatever. They, they just know they've got five days until they've got to get that paper in. Right. So I remember like the first of the month would roll around and like 75% of my tenants wouldn't have paid rent. And I always have, would have to like chase them down. They're really nice. They all pay rent, but it's just not top of mind for them. Right. And, you know, I was like, okay, I'm going to get out of this because real estate investing, not my thing. But luckily before I actually quit, uh, I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to educate myself and network the crap out of things before I go and liquidate my portfolio. And so I went on meetup, meetup.com, and I like set a search radius, I think of like, uh, like basically like a one hour drive. And I went to every single meetup that I could find, every single networking event, and try, you know, I got on every single board I could find, tried to read every single book. And I was going to this like, so this is now like, like 2010 time, 2010. Yeah. Time? Probably around 2010 now. Okay. Um, yeah. And I'm going to like 
every meetup, like two or three a week. And then I'm having like follow-up conversations with people. And that's actually where I met my now business partners. And I happened to buy a one or two properties in Toronto as well. It's like a condo and a, and a duplex through meeting my business partners. They're like, okay, well, they were experiencing the same thing. They had actually, funnily enough, invested in Sudbury, invested in Edmonton, some of these other uh, places where cap rates are higher. And they're like, man, this was like not the dream, right? Like there's some major issues uh, with their tenants. Um, and so we started creating processes and systems around how we're evaluating both the returns and the risk of our investments. One of the big things was in real estate investing, there's tons of information on like how to model returns, right? Everybody's got actually different ways of doing it, right? Cash on cash, cash on, you know, mortgage pay down, all these kinds of things, uh, cap rates. But when it comes to risk, there's no standardized way of modeling risk, right? And that was the big like black hole that we noticed. And it's actually what we started doing at Volition, which is the, you know, the company that I'm part of, is mo- putting models around risk profiles. So that way, when you're investing, you actually have risk-adjusted investment. It's like, you know, when you go to buy a, I don't know, mutual fund, they ask you, oh, what's your risk profile? Like, you answer all these questions about your risk profile. But when you invest in real estate, nobody talks about, you know, risk, time risk, like tenant risk profiles, like all, all that kind of stuff. It's just not a large enough factor, in my opinion, at least, on uh, when it comes to real estate investing. So, you know, after we had done some of this work, I looked at my uh, portfolio and I was like, one, the returns I was getting from uh, my properties in Toronto were higher. So while my cash on cash return on my Waterloo properties was significantly better, Cash on cash still accounted for a very small part of the overall return on the investment, right? Especially when I started to factor in cash and appreciation and cash on rental lift, if that's what you want to call it, right? When I started to renovate, I was getting higher lift uh, on some of my Toronto properties than I was on some of my Waterloo properties. And this had to do with ARVs uh, in neighborhoods and stuff that I would later understand further later on. But, you know, the the returns were, were stronger in Toronto. So that was one of the big things that started making me shift my portfolio. And then the other thing, as I mentioned, was risk profiles. Uh, and we ended up coming up with this like acronym that we use called TIME uh, to capture the four major areas of risk that we see in any investment property. And that's T is tenant, I investor, M market, and E estate, right? So T-I-M-E. And then we start to weight those risks. Wait, what, so, was, what was E? Estate, estate. Oh, estate, estate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We just, you know, the word kind of fits the acronym that way. I can remember them. <laughs> but basically a house, right? Like, um, but uh, so those are kind of the four major areas of risk. Uh, and this actually started to come out of our, like, I, I was in finance at the time. So we started, finance is so much about this, like credit risk analysis. They, everything's like risk based there. So we started to apply that to our investing. And then we looked at the, the risks that were out there. So those four risks and they like start to weight them. Like what is the biggest risk and why is it the biggest risk and how can we mitigate it against that? And so when we're looking at those four risks, tenant, investor, market, estate, tenant is by far the biggest risk, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that is because of the, you know, the rules of the game, the construct that we play in, you know, we're, well, I'm an Ontario investor and in Ontario, the tenant the, the, the laws are very uh, tenant friendly, 
right? You get a bad tenant in there, it's not paying rent. It's tough to get them out, right? You, you need to establish a case before you'll be able to, to, to get them out there. Very different from like Alberta, right? Where the turnaround time is quite quick. You're talking about weeks before somebody's out. And I had somebody who didn't pay rent and it was like six months before I was able to get them out of my place. So, you know, based on those laws, um, tenants, uh, let me back up. Tenants also define how much you can increase and decrease rent by, right? Like if I have a uh, tenant in my property, we're rent controlled, right? I can only increase my rents by certain amounts. Now, if the tenant turns over, great. Now I can bring my rent back up to market, but the tenant is the one really that's controlling my ability for income on my property. And that's kind of crazy. Like any business, like that your customer defines how much you can earn. So you better make sure you have a damn good customer, right? So that's what we start to, to look at. It's like, okay, so we got tenant risk here. It's a big risk. How do we find the best tenant? And that was like a tough question. Because like, I don't think any of us really knew what the best tenant was. We had in our, in our heads different ideas. I don't think we really knew what that, what a, like a best tenant was. So we started doing some research you know, looking at our own data, uh, looking at other investors. And some of the things we were looking for is like, okay, who pays rent on time? And where do these, like, why do they pay rent on time? How much are they willing to pay? What are they willing to pay for? So we started diving pretty deep into what our ideal tenant was. And where we landed was actually people in their mid twenties to mid thirties. At the time, they were millennials, but millennials are getting older now, so <laughs> can't really call them millennials anymore. But it was it was kind of that tenant profile, and the reason was one like so we got very crispy on who these people were. It was like people who are university educated, earning anywhere between sixty five, seventy five, eighty five thousand, uh, working in a profession like you know accounting, consulting, you know, good job. Um, especially though these people were working in the downtown core we found like most of these jobs in banking and tech, they were located in the downtown core. And also importantly, these folks are transient. They were living for like, let's say a year, maybe two in their properties. And then they were moving on. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, it's counterintuitive, but we actually wanted somebody who was transient, right? We didn't want a lifer because we're rent controlled we couldn't easily bring rents back up to market. And Toronto rents, I know you've sure you heard the headlines, they're, they're crazy, they were going nuts at the time. So that's how we settled on these people. And they didn't wanna you know, live in the downtown core, sorry, they didn't want to um, live kind of far away, they kind of want to live, work, play all close to each other. So there's some backwards analysis, where do they wanna live, how far are they willing to commute, all this kind of stuff. And that's how we ended up with the houses and the markets that we invest in in Toronto. It was all kind of tenant-based, um, uh, looking at their profiles. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. A, a lot of these tenants um, in Toronto, I mean, if you're working a white collar job, for the most part, you do have an ambition to want to own a property, whether that be in Toronto or maybe you want to move in the suburbs, but you kind of start off renting, working yep. your job, saving, 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 and then you eventually save enough to buy a place or to upgrade to a bigger rental and then eventually buy a place, right? So you're getting people who are responsible. You're getting people who are getting a good income, want an amazing credit score, um, don't want any issues with their landlord for the most part because they have, I guess they have like certain type of goals, morals, values in place and as to how they navigate 
the world. Um, so that's a very interesting point. Sorry, Ming, I cut you off. What were you going to add on? No, like that, that's, that's, you know, totally, totally it. Um, you know, and a lot of these people, I'd say probably like 60, maybe 70% of these folks, they want to live in a condo where most of them want to live, but there's a good chunk, 20, 30% of folks who don't want to live in a box in the sky, right? That's not their thing. And actually, especially with COVID, a lot of them are looking for outdoor space and they're willing to pay a little bit for it right now. I think it's really interesting, this whole like headlines around, oh, you know, rents are collapsing, rents are collapsing. And it's true, kind of, right? Like if you, so we're like, because uh, my background's in computer science, right? So we look at and my, my business partners as systems design engineers. We're like all about like the data. And so we took the data and we mapped it out by postal code. And it just shows a completely different story. Like you see, you do see massive drops in rents right in the core. So financial district got decimated. Let's like down 30%. And like very small units, studios, very small one bedrooms, no balconies. These things definitely got decimated during COVID. But people didn't leave the city. They just went to more space. They moved to, you know, just two or three postal codes outside where you're, you're talking about low rise buildings with balconies or these converted triplexes, which we do, which have backyards, you know, uh, outdoor amenities. People were, didn't want to leave their, the convenience of the city. They just wanted some breathing space and not to have to wait 50 minutes for a bloody elevator. Right. <laughs> so like that, that's really what we, we saw when we started looking at the data not, an exodus from, from the city. Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with you on that point. A lot of people overemphasize the impact of things. And then when things go back to normal, it's always human nature to overemphasize impact when there's good or bad news. One thing I did want to quickly touch on is you mentioned that, um, like you're taking risk adjusted returns. Well, mm-hmm. for the majority of investors, we think of Toronto as a cash flow negative market. How yeah. are you making an, I don't know what your beliefs are, but me personally, I don't want to invest in anything that's a negative cash flow, right? So how are you making these numbers? Okay, so you, you're in agreement with that, like neutral or above. So how are you yeah. making these numbers work in Toronto? Because it's not working with condos, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it doesn't at all. Not even close. <laughs> like, um, so, you know, Toronto was, at least as long as I've been an investor, never been a market that you can just buy and rent and make money. Like it's, it's, it's never existed. Maybe there were some small opportunities, but usually you had to do something. And you know, the, the trick that we use in Toronto is not a trick. It's what everybody does. And that's densification, right? Uh, it's just, you have to take it one step further here. Duplex did work for a little while in some neighborhoods, but probably for the last, I'd say five or six years, duplexes don't cash flow anymore. You're looking at best, you know, slightly cash flow negative on a duplex in Toronto. So what do you do? You just add another suite. You're looking at triplexes. And so everything we do these days are minimum triplex. And triplex can come in multiple forms. Uh, you know, we've got uh, three units within the main building. You've got a, a duplex with a laneway suite. However you're looking at getting it, you've got to densify somehow to be able to make it cash flow in Toronto. So that's the, that's the short answer. Really important is how do you actually execute that strategy? Because you can't just simply go triplex any house. You can't just put a laneway anywhere. But that's basically what we're doing is we're adding density. Yes. So, so I mean, so I'm curious now when we talk about like ROI, and I'm sure the ROI that you guys are getting is significant. Um, but what do the numbers look like on a project like that? Because I think a lot of people, Toronto, illegal, non-conforming units is 
90% of the inventory out there. Right. Yeah. Um, so what do the numbers look like on your end when you guys are like, uh, no one's putting in a laid weight suite. That's like illegal. Cause that would be crazy. high risk, right? <laughs> yeah. um, But what do the numbers look like on your end? Cause you're probably buying what in today's market, single family house is easy. Like, $1 million, at least for like a bungalow. Easy. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, not, not gonna lie. It is expensive investing now. And I think at, you know, one time it was probably, you could get into this model. Um, but what we do these days with our investors, we work them through kind of step-by-step step to get them to the point where they're at triplexes. A few people go in themselves, but some do. I'd say maybe like 40 to 50% of our clients go right to the triplex. So some numbers around this. It really varies quite highly based on what the end goal of the property is. And what I mean by that is if you are coming in with a duplex plus laneway, or, you know, let's say you're doing a duplex plus one illegal unit, or you're doing a fully legal triplex, I'm going to start at a different starting point depending on what the end goal is. So if I just do a duplex, I don't need a high, high ARV, but if I'm doing a triplex with a laneway suite where I'm doing significant construction, let's say like I've got a, like a million dollar rental budget, I need an ARV in a neighborhood that can support like a $3 million house. So the only way I'm going to do that is by buying in a good neighborhood, which means my starting point is a lot higher because does that make sense? Like I have to buy in a, like Trinity Bellwoods, for example, I can't go buy in like, I don't know, Dufferin Grove and expect a $3 million ARV. So my purchase price becomes higher depending on how much construction I have to put in. So let, let me give you some ranges. Uh, it, they're really big ranges. This is, this is why. So as low as a million bucks, let's say you're getting it. Because at any of these neighborhoods, if I'm going to do conversion, they have to be good enough neighborhoods and they're never going to be much cheaper than about one, one entry level. All the way up to about one six to one seven on the acquisition, right? And renovation budgets are going to be anywhere between let's say, let's just talk about, you know, fully legal, a fully legal triplex conversion costs about 400, 450, anywhere up in, in renovations. Yeah. Okay. Anywhere up to like, you know, 800, 900, over a million bucks, depending on how big of a renovation it ends up being. Right. So it's a pretty wide range, but it really depends on the details of the strategy. When we talk about a single family around 1.1 to 1.6, um, are we talking about a two-story um, 1950s type house, or are we talking about a 1970s type bungalow? Like, what type of properties are these that you're looking at? Yeah, so uh, nothing in the Toronto core is even that new. <laughs> so okay. pretty much, pretty much every property we're looking at is about 100 years old, right? Uh-huh. Um, there are some that are slightly newer, maybe built in about the 50s, but we're talking about like you know, neighborhoods like Little Italy, uh, Dover Court, Wallace Emerson, Little Portugal, Trinity Bellwood, Annex. So these are neighborhoods that have been established for like 100 years now, right? So when we're looking at properties there, they're like old Victorians, uh, you know, whatever those houses were called after the Victorian and before mid-century. I I don't know the name of that style, but like those kind of homes uh, all within the early turn of the century is pretty much what we're looking at. Okay, Um, so they already have the two floors, which is, I guess when you say a triplex, you talked about like basement, main floor, and then second floor. And it yeah. already has a second floor on it. Okay. Yeah. So the, the properties, I mean, they, they vary, but generally we're trying to look for as much square footage as possible because when we start doing top ups or extensions, things like that, it gets expensive. Right. And if we can keep, keep it to an interior renovation, that's always going to be best. 
Now we can add a little bit square footage wise, the small extension, maybe on the uh, second or third floor, but we don't want to be like expanding foundations that can just blow our budget out of the water. Uh, So if you're (laughs) buying at like 1.1, 1.2, and then you're spending about 400 of, let's call it 500 for argument's sake Mm -hmm. here, then you're all in about 1.6 million. Uh, What type of ARVs are you getting on these numbers? Uh, it depends, uh, but we're shooting for ARVs, uh, you know, like high ones to low twos and something like that. Okay. Right. So you're getting a, that's a good chunk of your capital actually. Cause if you end up at 2 million, you're almost at a full bear. Minus so actually we, let's yeah. talk about the barn capacity because who can qualify for like $3 million in a mortgage, right? Without like an insane salary or your business owner. So absolutely. There? <laughs> yeah, and, you see, uh, and I love these questions because these are more sophisticated questions because a lot of people just look at the model and they're like, oh yeah, I'll just like refinance the 2 million bucks. <laughs> but you're right. Um, so what do people do? One of the strategies we have is, look, one, you have to do this legally because one of the strategies we have, a lot of people do these illegally. We, we don't encourage that. Um, because it actually limits your ability to exit. And a lot of times investments are so like acquisition focused, but very not focused on how to get out of this uh, asset at the end. And that's actually where you make your money most of the time, right? So do it fully legally, make it four units, right? If I make this bigger, four units, I can qualify for commercial now. Now I may not be able to refinance all the way up to, let's say, you know, 80% 80% LTV, maybe I'm looking at like 70% LTV, but I'm able to get that money back and I'm on a commercial mortgage. So I'm actually taking a property from being residential, single family, acquiring under residential financing, taking it through the process of, you know, becoming three, four or five units, and then exiting with commercial financing, right? That's one of the strategies we use. Then what, what cap rate are they applying for the commercial financing? Like- <laughs> so cap rates vary quite a bit, but yeah. you know, generally like four and a half is what we're seeing. Oh. So they can be, they can be pretty good. Like, yeah. And this is the thing, low cap rates suck if you're the buyer and you're trying to buy on cap rates. Low cap rates are great if you're refinancing, you own the property. <laughs> so, but you know, in Toronto, we typically see anywhere between four and 5% for cap rates. Four and a half is just, you know, kind of ballpark what we're seeing. Gotcha. So they're actually trying to, they're being very conservative on the appraisal then, eh? Their yeah. appraisers are definitely tightening up because like 5%, yeah, I think you'd be lucky to get that in Hamilton nowadays for turnkey. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. That's, that's crazy. But I, I think it might, might also be the asset class, right? We're like, we're not talking about like large apartment buildings where like, like all those like wheats and stuff are buying at like three, four caps, right? These are like smaller buildings. So like the cap rate should be a little bit higher, but yeah. Yeah. yeah and you know, this is, you know, one of the things, one of the nice things about the exit and one of the reasons why we keep it around three, four, maybe five is it gives us multiple exits, right? So one, we can refinance, we can hold on to it and grow our portfolios. But two, if I'm doing, let's say a, a legal duplex with a laneway suite, I can turn around and send that to an end user. And one of the nice things about being able to do that is let's say you're selling now where the market is absolutely crazy on single family homes. You're able to capture that, right? Because a normal person could see themselves in a house with a laneway suite, maybe renting out the basement. Maybe they use the laneway suite for, you know, themselves or whatever, an office. But you could find an end user, some rich guy, right, with, with lots of money to, to purchase this home. There's tons of those kind of people in Toronto. And you're able to capture a quickly rising market on the exit versus having to sell to another investor, right? Like, it just... You know, investors only account for like five to seven percent uh, of all these of all market transactions. With if I'm investing with an exit in mind, 
I want to capture that other 95% of people who could potentially be buying property. So we don't want to turn it too income property like and then cut those people out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're when you're converting it to these like triplexes, let's stick with a triplex that I feel like that'd be the lowest cost option. Mm-hmm. Um, are you are you able to make the properties cash flow? Because at a one point six your mortgage is maybe what, like six to seven thousand dollars or something like that? Yeah, so so rents rents can I mean it's Toronto, so rents can be pretty crazy. You know, what we're seeing, let's say let's say your fully done asset is like, I don't know, uh, you're doing a light right out on this place. So you're talking like a one four. So you're typically looking on a one four asset to be about sixty five hundred in rent. But we have a lot of places that are like nine thousand, ten thousand, eleven thousand in rent. Like that's not unheard of when you're adding up all the suites. Because you know, a typical two bedroom, say two bedroom, one and a half bath unit, you know, anywhere from twenty four to low three thousands in rents, depending on how the actual unit is, right? So it's pretty easy to stack up three or four of those and get to like, you know. Let me ask you this. Like, how long do these development projects take? And uh, where I'm going with this is um, like myself and Austin, I, Austin, I don't think this has changed for you recently either. Um, we primarily don't really do conversions because it mm-hmm. takes so long, right? Like we yeah. love those, like go in lipstick, reno, single family house, even if we have to full gut it, like at least we don't need like, well, so, sometimes you need permits, but like whatever, if you don't need <laughs> permits, you know, you just get in there, you do it quickly and you get out. Right. Um, yep. And that's been our approach. So, when you're doing these kind of developments where you're putting in four or 500 grand and then you're putting in another 20% for down payment, which is easy 200 grand. So you're looking at like 700 K all in. Yeah. Are you away from that money for like a year? Like what, what are yeah. we looking at? And then what, like, isn't there a big risk from a time perspective that the market could turn in that year? Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some of those things. So development time minimum one year, and that's development from acquisition point, right? So what I mean by that is if I have a 90 day closing, I'm still that one year clock begins on acquisition because there's a bunch of things I just can't do until I own the home. I can't do exploratory demo, right? I can't go in there with a hammer and start checking what's behind the walls until I own the property. I can do like surveys and things like that, but we're always looking at at least one year. And for every subsequent unit I'm adding on, probably looking at an additional three to four months, right? So when I'm getting up to like five, six units, like it can take quite a while. And I have to do it this way because the way the development fees are charged in Toronto, it's actually really smart, right? Like if I go in and I'm like, okay, I'm building a fourplex, fiveplex, city of Toronto will be like, wait, five units, give me 200,000 in development fees, right? But that's not what we want to do. The way they've created it is that if I bring on unit by unit and each unit is subsequently smaller than the previous unit, they won't charge me a development fee. It's a really smart framework. <laughs> yeah. So it's a really smart framework because it allows small time developers like us to say, okay, here's a duplex. Now I'm adding my third unit. So I'm cutting my duplex, but it's going to be smaller than the other units. <laughs> and each unit I'm bringing online is subsequently smaller and smaller and smaller. They won't charge me any development fees, but I have to close every permit. So duplex permit close, triplex permit close, fourplex permit close. God, that so works on a small lot. scale. Mm-hmm. That's right. They're, they're leaving quite a few like development fees on the plate on the table there. They are. But the, the idea is to allow for small time development because Toronto's all about gentle densification. They want these things to happen. They they want us to build duplexes, triplexes, laneway houses. Like they're they're throwing out a bunch of rules. If we talk about laneway houses, like we use them strategically to help with the main house because things like parking 
is a requirement in a triplex. So I have to provide n minus one, where n is the number of units of parking. And if I introduce a laneway suite, which is de gentle densification, they throw out my parking requirements. Mm -hmm. So now I have zero parking for the main house. So we use it strategically as well. Uh, but my point is like a large scale developer can't do this. If I'm building a, I don't know, 500 unit condo, I can't go and introduce unit by unit and subsequently subdivide <laughs> and make it smaller and smaller yeah. and smaller, right? You end up like with a one square foot unit by the time you're done. And so it's great. Like I can't go really past like four or five units before mm -hmm. this isn't practical anymore. So it's, it's like, it's a really smart way of the city saying, Hey, small time developers, you don't get charged. Big time developers, you absolutely get charged, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to exits, the riskiest exits are those that only have one exit. Right. If I'm doing a flip and I'm sure you guys have experience in this, if my whole business case is around a flip, if the market changes on time that I'm exiting from that flip, I'm screwed. Right. Because we know when markets drop, they drop pretty fast. Yeah. Right. They take a while to recover, but drops happen pretty quick. So if I have to sell, right, because I'm returning money to investors or whatever it is, that's tough. But if my exit is flexible, then I've got some options. So one of the things that we encourage our investors to do is develop multiple exits in mind. So if I'm doing a, let's say a burr for buy and hold, uh, oh, let's go back to flip. Let's say one of my investors is like, okay, I'm going to turn a triplex and I'm going to sell it. Or I'm going to do the, a single family. But then they come to me and like, oh, you know, everybody's making money flipping single families right now. We tell them, no, don't do that. Because a single family flip has one exit at least put in a secondary suite, make a legal secondary unit in there because come time to sell, if the market crashes, at least you can hold it and minimize that loss at that point. Right. And this is the thing about these long developments. If I get to a year, a year is a long time, the market could absolutely change. And if my model is so focused on needing, you know, 80% of that money back at the end, that's a risky model. So, so don't, right? Like we don't, we don't encourage that. Have some flexibility that you could get, I don't know, 60% of that money back and that you won't be sunk. Then in a year or two or three, when the market recovers, go back and refinance again, right? But then your rents will also be stronger. Cap rate will be, well, it'll be it'll look more favorable. You can just refinance again, pull more money back out. Mm -hmm. Right. It's all about asking yourself that question. Like what, what I do if X event happens, right. And then you need to create a game plan for every single one. So for example, like student rentals, like you, you face this yourself. What happens if I get caught? Well, will it work as a long-term rental? Will it work as an Airbnb? What if Airbnb, like I know a lot of people are doing Airbnb now. What if Airbnb mm -hmm. rules regulations change? What are you exactly. going to pivot to? Right. Like, it's just a matter of anything that you go into, you have to ask yourself, what if circumstances change? Um, yeah. One thing I did, I did want to quickly ask, or it's more so of a statement, is 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 the reason why people don't do this strategy in a Scarborough or an Etobicoke or I don't know, like somewhere else within the GTA, because construction costs are the same anywhere, but the appraisal value just might not come in. Is that the logic? There's a couple of things. So one, so if I'm doing this as a burr, absolutely ARVs need to be there. And one of the problems when we get into suburbia and not even like suburbia, just the outskirts of Toronto even, is that the homes are all the same. And so if I'm all going down a street, I'm going to get all the comps, hopefully pretty much the same, right? Because they're all built around the same time. They're all very similar homes. But in Toronto, it is not a, 
it, like it's not uncommon to have like a house that's a million bucks next to a house that's two million bucks next to a house that's three million bucks on the same street. They're older neighborhoods. They were built that way. They're all over the map. That actually works in our favor when we're developing, uh, when we're looking for homes that we can exit with a high ARV. So that's one. Two is the rents start to drop off pretty drastically. And this was part of the research we did. When we start to get about 25 to 30 minutes from the downtown core, and this is driven by people in their 20s and 30s, right? That seems to be the max commute time they're willing to do, 25 minutes. If I start to get into like 30 minutes, they'll be closer to work in a smaller place. They'll start to compromise, right? But they don't want to live 30 plus minutes away from their, their work. Like that's kind of my generation. I'm a Gen Xer, right? Like an hour long commute back and forth was kind of the thing that we did. But uh, people in their 20s and 30s aren't willing to do that as much, right? They'd rather compromise on something else to be closer. So the rents start to drop off. You see that uh, when you map out rents. And that's also why this model doesn't work in like a Scarborough or North York or, or like uh, Kipling or those neighborhoods. Like it just, it doesn't work. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, I guess my, you might have some questions, but on my end, just the last question that I have um, is, is if you're, um, if you're looking at risk, risk weighted returns, and we talked about this a bit earlier, um, why can't you just kind of get the permits together for a, like a single family home and, and sell it off instead of going through the entire process, right? And just have all of the plans laid out and have another investor take it to the end. Would you be able to generate a profit that way? The, the reason that there isn't much of a market for that is because making it go is actually the hardest part. Converting to a duplex is actually pretty easy, right? Like um, the framework is all there throughout Ontario for support of secondary suites. And Toronto has lots of stuff on how to create a secondary suite. So selling it off to another investor as a secondary suite is easy. But a triplex, to get to legal triplex status, I actually have to close the secondary suite permit first and then open up a new permit for triplex. And actually, by the time I'm at that point, 90%, 95% of the construction is done. So I might as well take it that last 5%, 10%, finish it off, and then sell it as completed. Like that, There's definitely a market for completed uh, triplexes and fourplexes and stuff like that. But a like in a true development sense, where I'm not doing any construction, I'm just uh, setting things up, can't really be done under this model because it's a stepping stone approach to development. Yeah, that makes sense. Your buyer pool is probably just so tiny. <laughs> and these are all yeah, investors like, who want to make money too. If they can take, if they can execute, they're like, I might as well do it myself. <laughs> yeah, it's just like the execution part is actually quite complicated. So a lot of people would look at this and they, they don't, they wouldn't know what to do, right? Like if, because so much around triplex development is around proper fire separation. Three, you guys are probably like, oh my God, he's spending 450000 on renovating three units. I can do that for 50K, right? <laughs> but, but a, big, a big part of that is like the fire separation requirements for three legal units. I have to provide HVAC separation. What does that mean? Like I'm either putting fire dampers or I'm doing three separate HVACs. And that's what we typically do. Mm-hmm. Three furnaces, three air conditioners. So things like that make our HVAC bill like 40K right off the bat, right? So anyway, it's stuff like that, which if you don't know that you need to do these kind of things in a triplex conversion, you could pick up the papers and then do it all wrong, right? There's not too much, not too many people who are willing to risk it. So, so Ming, I just have one, one question for you. So, so what do you guys do at Volition Properties? So, so what is the, what is the business and what is the model? And, um, cause I, I heard you mention like investors and I heard you mention like different, different parts yeah. of your business, but I'm just curious. Yeah. You do. yeah. So there's basically two main major parts of the company. First one is 
we help people buy these kind of properties, right? As I mentioned before, you can't just go and buy any house and have it turn into a legal triplex or a laneway or any of these things. There's so many parameters. You know, laneways add a completely another layer of complication. And we just, we actually just did an article with HGTV trying to define all the things you need in there and they cut out like 90% of it because it was like really boring crap. But like, you know, the side setbacks, distance between main buildings and where your secondary suite's going to be, you know, fire hydrant distances, uh, building heights, uh, zero lot construction. Uh, You really need to know, you know, know your shit before you go and buy a property that you think you can do development on. So, Number one is we help people buy these places. We, we are essentially a, a brokerage, so we make money as real estate agents helping people buy those things. It's a pretty simple business model. The other thing is construction. So much of what we're talking about here requires construction. And it's, it's specialty construction. It's not like I'm you know, renovating a kitchen or bathroom. It's small-scale development. Like we're trying to, I don't know. Uh, I just had a conversation with one of my friends the other day and he's like, yeah, they're asking me to firebox my pot lights. Like what are the options I have there to show fire separation? So, you know, our contractors have experience doing this kind of stuff. So we have a whole division of on the construction side to execute against the strategy because it's one thing to have them in theory. It's another thing to actually execute against them. Got it, Ming. So I think that was a super informative episode for anyone that doesn't know, or like, I think you're our first real guest that's done Toronto real estate, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for sure. Yep. So, so generally at this part of the episode, Ming, we'd like to ask our guests uh, three main questions to kind of wrap up the podcast. But, um, you know, where do you see yourself five years from now, both on the investment journey, the development space, and I guess even your personal life? Yeah. Um, so the construction side of the company is... I'd say there's been a renewed focus on it because it was more like we had it to solve the investment problem before. Like, oh, you, you want to buy a triplex? Okay, we'll, we'll help you with the construction side. But now we're taking on clients who haven't bought a property through us to help them with the construction piece. So like five years from now, I'd like, you know, love to see Volition construction signs up, <laughs> up along the city. Uh, we, we partner with Lanescape on a bunch of stuff and I see their signs everywhere. So like that, that's my goal is to be, be like those guys and have our signs all over the city. That'd be awesome. That's awesome. Oh, you're investing, that, that's such, actually such a cool investment journey, right? Like you go from Waterloo <laughs> to then Toronto to then being a realtor, I guess. And I didn't even know you, you were a realtor. I guess somewhere along the journey, you became a realtor. Um, yeah. 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 Somewhere along there. <laughs> <laughs> to, to move into construction. Like that's, that's like a full, like, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe that. <laughs> All over the map is the word you're looking for. Mike. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and and you forgot to mention that uh, Volition also hosts events as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, a big part is like what you guys are doing is, is education. And uh, it's it just like, it's cool. One of the things I, a little side story here, but one of the things that um, I was faced with a couple of years ago is, was, do I continue working? Do I run a business? Like, what do I do with my life? I've been investing since 2001. So, you know, I've been fortunate enough that uh, I've had a lot of equity built up in properties. I've been able to do this for so many years. And it's like, what do I do with my life? Right. Um, The million dollar question. What do I do with life? (laughs) Well, (laughs) so I, I took some time off and it was like, to be quite honest, really boring. It's, bad. Like, you know, it's like watching movies and playing video games and stuff like that. But like, you know, at the time my 
my now wife, who's then girlfriend, she's an entrepreneur. And she's like, well, what are you doing? Like, you're doing nothing with your life. Like, <laughs> go, do, go do something with your life. Um, and a big part of Volition was like to, to give like purpose, like uh, to educate, to teach, to, to you know, bring forth another uh, round of investors. Because, you know, watching movies can, can only get you so far. So <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's all about, man. Like I find with real estate investors, we go through the hustle, dedication, the hardships, and we want to give it back. You know, we want to pa- not give it back, like pass it on to the next the next, I guess, it seems old for me to say, but generation of the next incoming yeah. investors, right? It's actually enjoyable. Like, this is the thing. Like, I love teaching. So anyway, that's, that is a big part. We have these monthly meetups and, and we, we teach real estate investing. Uh, a lot of Toronto stuff. So if people are interested in Toronto investing. Yeah. Awesome. That'll be, that'll be in the, what do you call it? Why am I, why is that slipping my mind? The description? Sure. Show <laughs> notes? Yeah. No, I don't know. The podcast <laughs> terminology. Um, the second question I have, uh, Ming, if you want $10 million and you had seven days to spend it and you cannot spend it all in real estate, what would you do with it? Oh, oh I didn't know they had all these like, uh, uh, like things that I had to, like I had to spend it. Uh, Cause it's like, uh, when you guys asked me this question, like ahead of time, I was like, oh, like, what the hell would I do with, with the money? Um, so, I mean, there's two things that, that I like, uh, which probably like expensive hobbies. One of them's cars. I'm a big car guy. <laughs> so I'd probably buy like a unreasonably expensive car. Though I, I never can bring myself to it. When I actually go, uh, I like, I have to go pay for it. I'm like, ah, I can't do it. I think I'm just a cheap Chinese dude. Right. It's in the blood. It's in the blood. I can't, you know, I'm going against my DNA. Uh, but I probably would, you know, if I had to in seven days, go buy uh, an expensive car. Uh, and the other thing I like are, are watches. So I'd probably go mm-hmm. buy something weird and expensive as well. Uh, but like, if I, if I really had to, I'd probably just give it to my parents. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, we're, we're, we all come from immigrant families and there's this uh, common, you know, sacrifice that our parents have made. So I'd love to love to give them the money and they can do what they want with it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. man. So if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, uh, who would you choose and why? Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they say, don't meet your heroes. Uh, and, uh, I kind of believe that. So, you know, I was thinking a bunch of people like, you know, Bezos and Gates and stuff like that, but I, I don't think I'd actually want to meet them. Uh, the one person I think I'd love to meet is my grandfather on my mother's side because he passed away a week before I was born. Uh, so I never got to meet him, never got to, you know, uh, find out that side of my, my family history. So that, that'd probably be it. Awesome. Awesome. You're very, I, I think, yeah, like, the immigrant hustle, like we're, we're very family oriented and it, and it really just shows through kind of like the people you want to meet, the things you want to do with the money. And that that's amazing, man. Um, I guess one last thing, is there anything that you want to share with new investors before we wrap up here that could help them along their journey? Cause you are, have just been a wealth of knowledge. Well, you know, I, I always say before you go spend a single dollar on investing, get yourself you know, not only educated, but networked, right? Like the thing that you guys are doing here with creating a network of other investors is so key because you can only, you know, I know we're on a podcast, but you can only learn so much through podcasts. You can only learn so much through YouTube videos at some point in your investment journey. And it's not very long. You'll come across a unique problem, which only people in your network can help you along with. 
Now, I remember when I first got into development and I was talking with another developer. I was like, yeah, you know, I have to do this. And I, I had no idea how to represent myself in the city. And he's like, go hire a planner. And I was like, yeah, I'm talking with the city planners. He's like, no, hire your own planner. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, there's a whole job classification of people who will represent for you at the city who will help you navigate that process. And, that, you know, it's, it's crazy to think that I didn't know that at the time and I was getting into development, but I didn't. And that conversation, you know, saved me probably years of problems and, and tens of thousands of dollars in mistakes because uh, I actually just go, went and hired a city planner after that. So the network, I think, is so, so key. Yep. And we hear that again from every investor, even you investors to experience investors. Like in the beginning of my journey, if I was to give advice to people, I'd be like network experience. The advice is still the same network, right? So yeah. um, if you guys aren't networking, you're really just missing out. Your our advice is falling on deaf ears. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing listening to this podcast then? Um, <laughs> anyways, Ming, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a, a as always, a fantastic chat with you. Your wealth of knowledge. Um, we'll make sure to drop down below all of your social media handles although i don't think you're super active on social media but your volition handle because i know you're very active on that um i assume that's the best way people can reach out to you is that correct yeah that's the best way you can you can uh, email us as well uh info at volitionprop.com but yeah that's that's that'd be right perfect that's all in the show notes below again ming thank you so much for jumping on uh, in five years, we need to have you on again, maybe less than five years, because maybe you'll reach all your goals. Like I'll see your, your, your <laughs> yeah, we'll volition see. signs all across Toronto. <laughs> we'll see about that. We'll see about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? You're public with it. So now we're going to keep you accountable to it. You're right. <laughs> cool. If you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, do anything you can to support the podcast. It helps bring great guests like Ming on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Mm-hmm.